Alright all you movie junkies, it is time for the SLS Cast, with your hosts Matt and Tim. And welcome once again to the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is episode 120. It is, of course, naturally, the Great Assembly episode. Of the SLS cast, because it turns out that the number of men of the Great Assembly who canonized the books of the Tanakh and formulated the Jewish prayers, 120. And with that wonderful little bit of Jewish factoid knowledge, this of course is Matt, and coming to us from the sphincter of the company spirit of Sony, which is a golden guinea pig, would be... Tim, why? So you're saying a guinea pig is the sacred animal of Sony? Uh, a golden guinea pig. What's the difference? Is the company spirit? You know, it's like you put a little potpourri on shit and it's still shit. Hey, look, I'm just trying to bring the full disclosure side of our show in a very in a fun way. For all of our listener. <laughs> and you're doing a good job. Parenthesis S and parenthesis. Yeah, every day the uh, lawyers at Sony give me calls, and before they bitch out, bitch me out about certain <laughs> things, they always say, well, luckily Matt saves your ass by putting a nice little spin on it. So, thank you for keeping That's me right. from not getting fired. Hey, I'm happy to help. Happy to help. Uh, so, yes. How have you been, sir? Good. I was on the uh, Midnight Movie Nights podcast last weekend. You sure were. I was, and yet the show is still not posted. What the hell? I want to listen Uh-oh. to myself because <laughs> I don't well, do see, that enough. Now, now that you, now that you have been on the show, I was on the show last year, and now you have been on the show. Maybe one day we'll all be on together. That'll be fun. Um, Two thousand sixteen. Open invitation, of course. For that to happen on our end, if y'all guys want to come join us, Seebs, Kitty. Um, but uh, it, it's fun, isn't it? The show is like ten times better when you get to be on it, right? <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's probably how they feel. Like they would say, you know, our show, you know, Matt and Tim's show is pretty good. It would probably be ten times better if we were on it. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So, and how did you enjoy your experience? I know we got to text a little bit, but how was your how how did you enjoy your experience? We did. It was good. It, it was funny because they uh, for I forgot the reason why, but uh, Miranda put horns. on the horns. Well, no, 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 no. I mean, horns, I mean, those, no. She shot. Oh, yeah. uh, she put on the uh, the webcam. Oh, oh to show okay. me something. To show me her vaporizer. Oh, look at that. See, I never. I I still don't know what these people look like. I mean, I've seen the little tw- Twitter pictures or whatnot. Uh, from Seebs, but I, I, you know, having, uh, I, yeah. Well, no, I mean, I didn't see the cat. The cat, the cat was still off to the side. And every once in a oh, while, okay. uh, he would fall to the ground laughing, or I would just see his thumb come out in frame and give me a thumbs up. So, he's kind of like uh. the Johnny Carson of, of podcasting that you never see. He is like the man behind the veil who you know he's if like you make the him Bill Watterson the Bill <laughs> of of podcasts. And if he dies from laughter, you know you you know you know you made it, you know. 
That's how you know. That's how you can. That's that's how you know you're famous, somewhat kind of. That's how you you're famous on that one podcast. There you go. But it was fun. It was good. Um, however, I did have another fun thing that happened uh, that rivaled that podcast experience. I went to the uh, the New Beverly Cinema, the Quentin Tarantino movie theater, and I saw two movies that I grew up watching in the in the early 90s. And one of them I saw 20 years ago at the movie theater with my father, and that movie was Cutthroat Island. And I have to say, that movie aged wonderfully. Like, there's no sarcasm within that whatsoever. I'm actually being serious. It's like, uh, what, what's awesome about it is that movies like that are not made anymore. There are loads of stunts uh, so much money was put into the movie, so everything was grandiose and detailed and big. And, you know, of course, it's hammy. It, you know, the dialogue kind of sucks. But it's a super entertaining pirate adventure. And, it, it like, new light was shed upon the movie and, and what I thought about the movie after seeing it. And then the second feature right after was True Lies. And right now, I, I will say, hands down, other than T2... That is my second favorite Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. It is hilarious. I mean, it's the best use of, you know, the kind of the straighter-laced cop guy and his partner buddy, Tom Arnold, who's cracking the jokes. Because actually, Tom Arnold's funny in the movie. Not over the top or stupid or anything like that, so... I really had a lot of respect for Tom Arnold. I thought, you know, given his situation um, where his prominence came due to his marriage to Roseanne and everything, that seeing him in True Lies was kind of like a validation of, hey, look, this guy's actually funny. He's got some acting chops, too. Who who knew? Who knew? Who knew that he was cleaner than the preacher's sheets? Who knew? <laughs> Not my preacher sheets. <laughs> that's oh, what I call that's my, awesome. My oh, I had a pretty... Standard week, nothing, um, nothing too exciting that I can think of. I, I made sure to stay up on Saturday and listen to the Midnight Movie Nights because I found out, you know, when when you let me know that you were going to be on. So I had to hear you guys, you know, completely bash horns, which I which I still stand by. I mean, it's clearly not the best movie in the world, but um, it, but it's definitely better than what y'all were thinking of it, and. I thought it was brave that they showed a non-child Daniel Radcliffe playing the role of a childhood Daniel Radcliffe. That never even crossed my mind when Siebes was like, we know what he looked like when he was a kid. You can't put somebody else. I was like, you know, that's that's a fair point, but I didn't notice it. So, yeah. it's But apparently, I'm the only one who liked it. So. <laughs> Literally, it's proven. <laughs> For the next... For the next time we do that, I guess I'll just plug in <laughs> horns. Oh, oh my man. goodness. All right. Should we go ahead and get to the news? We, we have got a whole bunch of stuff going on in the personal life backgrounds for both Matt and Tim this week. So um, we've had to start recording late. We're actually on the 25th of March, uh, Wednesday instead of a Monday. So we're going to do a bit of a truncated show. We're going to push our discussions piece on the last cool movies being uh 
for kids being done in 1985. We're going to go ahead and move that uh, to next week. We're going to push that back to next week and just do uh, two pieces of news each and get to the movie. So are you ready, sir? I am ready. All right, then. Here we go, folks. It's going to be the news. The news. Um, my first piece of news comes to us from ScreenCrush.com, courtesy of Britt Hayes. Martin Scorsese reportedly directing Jamie Foxx in Mike Tyson biopic. Yeah, that's right, folks. Last year, it was announced that Fox had signed on to play the legendary boxing champ, of course, referring to Mike Tyson, in a new biopic over at Paramount, Fox stopped by Power 105's The Breakfast Club radio show, uh, where he dropped a pretty impressive announcement. Quote, I just went in with Paramount with Mike Tyson, so I'm going to do the Mike Tyson story. Listen, to be in the same room pitching Mike Tyson to Paramount, Mike Tyson is on one side, I'm on the other side doing Mike Tyson at the same time, and Martin Scorsese is at the helm. This will be the first boxing movie that Martin Scorsese has done since Raging Bull, end quote. Um... It goes on to say that it is not immediately clear when the project is going to happen. Uh, right now, Scorsese is in production on Silence, and... Yeah, the director has also been reported linked to a Ramones biopic. And it was also recently rumored that Scorsese met with Kenneth Branagh about adapting his immersive version of Macbeth for the big screen. So, um, what do you think, Tim? Is this a good idea? Bad idea? You glad this is going to happen? I, I, they, they did a pretty good one with Ving Rames for HBO back in the late 90s. And, of course, this one was really more focused on Don King versus Mike Tyson. But, um, I mean, they really did a good job of fitting Mike Tyson's story in there with it. So, I don't know. What what do you think? It, is the big screen ready for Tyson? Well, as long as Leo DiCaprio or... Uh, or or uh, Robert De Niro, Robert De Niro isn't playing Mike Tyson. I think we're we're in good hands with Jamie Fox because I honestly, if I had to think of one actor, like well known African American actor who could play Mike Tyson, mm-hmm. it would have been Jamie Fox. And I'm kind of I'm happy about it. I think Mike Tyson is definitely uh, just one of those characters in life that would make an entertaining movie and i think it it could be something that 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 could be potentially more fun for uh for scorsese and jamie fox to do and something that's a little bit different to the to the to the tone and not moodiness but to the tone of like wolf of wall street you know towards not going to be complete like exploitation like a like a gangster movie of his for example so I think it'd be cool. I mean, they haven't made a really good boxing movie in a while. Maybe. Oh, the fighter was pretty good. Oh, that's right. Well, before that, they haven't made one. <laughs> Rocky Balboa. <laughs> there. Yeah, that might have been the last one. Right. Before on. that. All right. What do you got for us, sir? All right. So there have been a whole slew of Romeo and Juliet movies that have come out in the past however many years. In fact, I have IMDb.com. 
open up right now to the various releases of Romeo and Juliet uh, next to, you know, the, the years that they were they were released. And I'm going to read them off to you just so you get an idea of how many of these there were. Now, I'm not going in any particular order, but I'm going to start off with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's Romeo and Juliet from 1996. Uh, in 1968, you have, before the 1996 Romeo and Juliet movie, the 1968 Romeo and Juliet was the most uh, popular and famous. I remember that was my first experience to Romeo and Juliet. When it would come on I, either Turner Classic Movies, or I think they were showing it on Showtime, uh, back in the early 90s, and I remember watching it with my dad, and he said that when he was eight or nine years old, all the boys wanted to go see this movie because you saw butts in it. And <laughs> back in the late 60s, early 70s, it was a hot day if uh, if you got to see some butt action on the screen. In 2014, this past year, there was a release of Romeo and Juliet, very recent, uh, 96, there was a, a movie called Tromeo in Juliet. Uh, that might be more of a, fr- uh, a foreign version. Um, you have a Romeo and Juliet from 1936. 1954, there was one. Uh, in 2017, we're going to be getting a Romeo and Juliet, The War. Uh, there was a TV series that came out in 2014 called Romeo and Juliet. And there was a, uh, a, a video uh, of, I guess released only to video version of Romeo and Juliet that came out in the year 2000. And on top of all of that, when I was in high school, James Franco came out with a film called Tristan and Isolde, which is, uh, I, I think that is like the, like the, the story that Romeo and Juliet is based off of. And so you have all these Romeo and Juliet movies. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine or ten, ten, eleven, something like that. Yet... Sony Pictures is wanting to make their own Romeo and Juliet film. However, it's going to be significantly different in style. This Romeo and Juliet movie will be made as if it were a 300 film. As in, it's going to be very stylized. It's going to be, I guess it's going to be comic booky and look like nothing else you have seen before. This is from io9.com. Sony to make 300-style Romeo and Juliet movie because life is still pain, written by Rob Bricken. And I'm just going to read a little bit of this here. When you think of the greatest romance stories of all time, there are only two that are incontestably at the top. William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, and of course, Frank Miller's historical war fantasy 300 which is no doubt why Sony plans to combine the two love epics in a single movie. Via The Hollywood Reporter, quote, The studio is in final negotiations to pick up Verona, the fair city, which is the setting of William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, a spec by Neil Wiedner and Gavin James that retells the tale. Exact details are being kept more clandestine than a love affair between the two teens from opposing Italian families, but the script is said to reimag- but the script is said to reimagine the classic love story through a lens of an epic 300 style world. 300 was the gritty and fantastical Zack Snyder movie that adapted the Frank Miller comic book miniseries that retold a battle between Greeks versus Persians in a stylized and heightenized reality. End all quotes. Matt, what do you think? 
do you think we need a 300 movie? Or, excuse me, do you think we need another Romeo and Juliet movie? Do we need another stylized version of Romeo and Juliet? I mean, we have Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. I mean, you cannot top that one. Um, oh gosh. Who, who... Who did the one with uh, Leo DiCaprio back in the nineties? Yeah, that's that's Boz Lerman. That's Bos, okay, yeah. that's Bos, okay. Um, I would say, given that it's been literally at least twenty years, um, and the fact that people today are just flat out, it's it's not right. We have discussed this before. I don't believe that it is right, but the general movie going public will just not watch re-releases of movies if they can see it on dvd they're not going to watch a re-release and because they could see it on blu-ray or dvd they're not necessarily as inclined to go back and look at a 20 year old version of shakes uh, of romeo and juliet um so i can see how something like that would be maybe needed as as sorry of a state it is to admit that, but I don't know that a 300 stylization is the way to go, especially given the failure of 300 Rise of an Empire and Sin City 2. I, I, I think that that ship has sailed. So, hmm. I would just, I'm like you, I'd go, go and see, go and see the, the really good one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's not like there's just one. There's multiple. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But yeah, that is definitely one that whenever I try and introduce people to Shakespeare uh, in a movie, I will either do that one uh, or Mel Gibson's Hamlet or perhaps um, Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. So. Ooh, that's. I think that's probably the best Shakespeare uh, film or Shakespeare play put to film. Is the Kenneth Branagh's Indeed. Hamlet. Indeed. All right. Well, for me then, last piece of news here. Uh, from HollywoodReporter.com and courtesy of Rebecca Ford, coming to us from the, what the hell are they thinking? Why are you doing this? Department. Tim Burton to direct live-action Dumbo for Disney. This is not a joke. Um, yeah. In the latest move by the studio as it continues to make live-action versions of its animated classics, Disney has tapped the Big Eyes Helmer to take on the tale of a baby circus elephant who is made fun of for his large ears, based on the iconic 1941 film. <sighs> um, as THR exclusively reported, Transformers franchise writer Aaron Kruger penned the script. This is just getting worse! Oh my god! Um, the film will use a mix of CGI and live action to bring the classic elephant story to life and will add a unique family story that parallels Dumbo's journey. <sighs> um, what, what do you think, sir? I think this is just... I really don't think this is a good idea. You know, I thought Alice in Wonderland with Tim Burton directing was a good idea until I watched the movie. <laughs> and that movie ruined the prospect of Tim Burton returning to a re returning to form, I guess. I mean, you, you have Frankenweenie, which was pretty good. But it was not as good as his previous films. 
Big Eyes was cool because it reminded me a lot of when he did Big Fish. There was a little weirdness to it, but it was all about the story. It was a good story. It wasn't about the special effects. It wasn't about trying to weird people out. It was a good story. And so I'm worried about Dumbo. The same reasons why, uh, you know, why I, I didn't like uh, Alice in Wonderland because they didn't pay any attention to the story. Or then they didn't, it seemed like they didn't really pay any attention to the story. But by God, were there visuals coming out of everybody's ass. So that's what I'm worried about. It just depends on how they're going to approach it. But because it's Disney and because it's Tim Burton, I think they're going to try to make it as, you know, wacky and goofy as possible. So I don't know. Indeed. And I have found that Alice in Wonderland is extremely divisive. Um, while it definitely made a lot of money worldwide and everything, when it comes down to brass tacks, people truly love it or they hate it. Um, I have only ever seen like the first 20 minutes of it. I think (laughs) I kind of missed, I kind of like missed the boat just because of the way things worked out. And then I went to watch it one day and I got sidetracked because of, and I, so I, I'm afraid to go back. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to do. Uh, anyways, all right, sir. Go ahead. Close out the news for us. All right. In closing, we're gonna, I'm going to talk about news pertaining to a movie that neither of us actually went to go see. I don't think most people didn't go see this movie. Or we weren't the only ones because a lot of people didn't go see this movie. Uh, from ScreenCrush.com. Mordecai is being cut down to a PG-13 rating for VOD, written by Jacob Hall. And it says this. In year already filled with high-profile box office flops, Mordecai is definitely in the running for the most spectacular of the bunch. If we were to count every reason this Johnny Depp comedy bombed with critics and audiences, we'd need a few hands but we can boil it down to one key factor. It looked about as obnoxious as movies can get, but Lionsgate seems to think that the film's R rating may have been to blame, hence their unusual decision to recut the film into a a family-friendly PG-13 version for its VOD release. Don't fret, Mordecai purists. All three of you don't have to worry. The film will still exist in R-rated form on Blu-ray and DVD. According to Forbes, those who choose to indulge in director David Cup's widely derided slice of mustache po- uh, mustache-ploitation on VOD will be given the opinion of two separate cuts. Both versions will run 107 minutes, but one will remove the language and sexuality that made the theatrical version a soft R. And it goes on from there, but I'm going to end all quotes right there. So, yes, the last time that I heard this happening, or the last time I heard this happen, where they took an R-rated movie and and cut it to a PG-13 rating, was for The King's Speech, a totally different movie. The movie was nominated for loads of Academy Awards, and uh, when the movie got nominated, it you know there was a lot of interest you know, going towards the movie, and so they wanted more people to see it. Well, since only a couple scenes included the word fuck, 
it, it's kind of seemed like the obvious choice to cut it down a little bit. So it would be PG-13 because the movie is R because of, you know, a little bit of salty language, uh, which really wasn't that bad. And I guess the movie fared well because of it. This movie to me doesn't, I mean, I, I really don't know. I mean, I it's hard for me to really say anything because I haven't seen the movie. Full disclosure on that part. But it's like, if you have a bad movie, I don't think removing the language is going to fix the movie. And honestly, I don't really think that's even the point. I think if they make it PG-13, maybe 25 more people will watch it because they are in the company of children. Or, you know, 13-year-olds or whatever. So, I'm kind of leaning more towards that. Not for the sake of quality, but for the... Uh, for but. Uh, for the amount of people that will pay more money because of, you know, it not being R-rated. Matt, comments, questions, concerns? Yeah, I, I it, it sounds like the film definitely failed on more counts than just the language. So, it, it, this is purely just a money grab. People will probably just see it as PG-13, not ever even realizing that it was R in the first place. And then, like you said, oh, okay, well, I guess we can watch this one with the kids in the room, and then they'll hit it up on VOD, so. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right, so, as we said, okay, so it's going to conclude the news, and as we said, due to some time constraints on our end, we're going to go ahead and postpone our discussions with Matt and Tim on the feature article uh, that we discussed last week. We're going to go ahead and push that to next week and jump right into the movies. All right. So this week's movies are It Happened One Night, The Guest, and Calvary. Not cavalry, like the armed military on horses. Cavalry, like Christ died. Um, where do you want to start, sir? The guest. The guest. The surprising winner this week. Um, I honestly was truly surprised at this movie. It's because you're I a Cousin Matthew fan. That is why. That is the only reason why you liked it, Matt. It's because you were getting all wet over Cousin Matthew. You down nabbyist. Was... Team Cousin Matthew. <laughs> yeah, because I didn't want him. Because I was so, so happy that he died at the end of season two. Oh, spoiler alert. Sorry. For the three of you like that don't know that. Now. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I was going to say it's been like <laughs> here, so um all right so let's see here um all right 2014 american thriller it's directed and edited by adam wingard uh written by simon barrett stars dan stevens micah monroe brendan meyer and lance reddick now this is about a family who lost their son in the war in afghanistan it's the peterson family they are visited by a former soldier named David who says he was a friend of Caleb's and told Caleb, I'll make sure to take care of your family. It, you know, if anything ever happens. So because they're impressed with him and of course, you know, it's a military is a family and community and all that. 
they decided to take him in, where he immediately starts righting the wrongs of the Peterson family by killing everybody. <laughs> and what's so surprising about this, okay, there is a movie out there. It is called Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead. Now, uh, in one of the most surprisingly badass plays I, you've ever, or badass turns you've ever seen, um, Steve Buscemi plays a hitman in this movie. And he plays, he's like this completely unassuming guy who is just a strictly versatile fucking badass. Now, the movie in and of itself is pretty good. Me and my brother, we like it, but we just, because of the time in our life when we saw it, kind of have an emotional attachment to it. It's a pretty decent movie. Nothing great. But that character in this film, in, in that particular film, is like the consummate bad guy. It's just destroy or be destroyed. Nothing personal, just destroy or be destroyed. Translates into David's character, again played by Dan Stevens. Um, and it's just, it's ruthless efficiency. And you don't, and you so very rarely get to see that played off in such a dynamite way. It's completely unexpected. So, as he's going about taking care of the Petersons in every possible way, uh, <laughs> fucking over people, fucking people, <laughs> killing people, whatever. It turns out that David is not exactly what he purported himself to be. Um, in a rather, I don't know, mundane twist, I guess, you, you find out that there's, you find out exactly what the deal is with David. And of course, then the shit truly hits the fan. Um, Minor spoiler alert, I, I truly have to love a movie that ends with the phrase, what the fuck, uh, you know, um, and that's just fantastic. The movie does not pretend to be, I don't want to say smart, it, it's not that it's not smart, it, it's that it doesn't pretend to be Gosh, what is the word I'm looking for? Feel free to jump in, Tim, if you have a word that you think would work for this movie. Pretentious? Smug? Yeah, I guess pretend I guess pretentious. It's it's definitely not trying to be a pretentious thriller. It's just merely trying to tell this unique story in in a fun way. I mean, it's dark, but it's a but it's fun. Um, the acting is overall decent. The writing, I would also have to say, the writing is decent as well. It's just the it's just kind of the generic plot twist that they throw in that kind of throws a monkey wrench into everything. But then it has a fun high school fanciful edge to it that plays out in the third act all in all i gotta give this movie 3.75 stars i i really like this movie it's definitely got its flaws um but it is worth seeing it's a little bit more than a popcorn flick um going into the thriller section but it's definitely 
not something, it's definitely not a consummate thriller, but still enjoyable. 3.75. Yeah, I'm going to try to uh, review this without giving away any any details or going over again what Matt just said. So I'm just going to jump in by saying that this is a movie that I think is definitely worth uh, watching. Um, it is very entertaining, for the most part. And it's it's something it's it's fresh, you know, it's fresh feeling, uh, you know, you know, you, this is a type of story and a type of movie you really don't see a lot uh, nowadays. This is definitely something you would have seen in the early 90s or in the late 80s. Um, and, and you can really get that sense by how the movie is shot, where it's set and uh, what kind of limitations it has, especially by the type of mood and the tone that it's that it sets and what kind of uh, emotion that the movie's wanting to get from you, uh, it all kind of mixes together into a very kind of like unique um, experience. However, with saying that, um, in a way I can compare this film to Hobo with a Shotgun, uh, a better version of Hobo with a Shotgun. The reason why I didn't like Kobo with the shotgun, for one thing, it was kind of like a grindhouse movie where it's edgy. Um, they were trying to make it more like a, like an exploitation type film from the 1970s. Uh, and, but then they were also playing with genres, uh, the various genre films from the 70s and, and, and as well as the 80s, like the Wes Cravens and the John Carpenter films, the non-horror John Carpenter films. Um but it just became very jumbled and all over the place and gory and violent for the sake of being violent and gory. But this movie, the guess never reaches that. I, I mean, it, it was having fun for what it, uh, you know, with, with, with already, you know, what it had, it wasn't trying to create anything more than it, than it, than it absolutely needed for them, for the story to progress. However, I felt a little, I don't know if maybe a uneasy, I don't want to say lost, but I guess feeling, I felt a little uneasy um, until I, until when I thought the movie got its proper footing back, I guess, because you have this kind of sad opening and right off the bat, you think the movie is going to move it into one direction. Because I made a, I made it a point not to watch any trailers. I made it a point not to watch any clips or read, or, or not read a synopsis. So going into the movie, I, I mean, I thought that the movie was 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 like was going to be like a like a linear type of film, you know, kind of moving in a straight line, you know, basically the here's the plot, here's the setup, and here's the execution. People kept calling this movie a nostalgic throwback action movie from the 80s or 90s. It is not that movie. I have no idea why the hell people keep calling it a, a, a goddamn 80s action movie. It's not that whatsoever. It is definitely more so along the lines of the uh, the low-budget indie uh, John Carpenter type of movies. And if I knew that going in, I probably would have had a different expectation, which... One shouldn't go into a movie with a set expectation unless you're going to see uh, a specific type of movie. And I think that is why, or that's what attributed to me feeling a little uneasy or a little unlost until I realized, oh, so this is what's about to happen. 
<laughs> and then, you know, I'm along for the ride. But, with saying all that, the movie is entertaining. It's good. The acting is so-so. You have a lot of really good character actors in the movie. Um, there's a lot of fun, funniness to the film. It's not overly gory. It's not overly, um, uh, uh, you know, vulgar. However, it is awfully violent without you having, you know, without you seeing too much stuff, which I thought was uh, a, a job well done, done for Adam Wingard. Um, and lastly, what really made this movie very entertaining and enjoyable was the use of music and the cinematography, like how the movie was shot. Um, the music is very engaging. If any of you guys have seen the movie Drive, uh, in a way, I can, I, you know, I can, I can kind of compare this movie to Drive in a way, because again, you watch Drive and you think um, Gosling's character is this one type of guy, you know, he's he's you know one thing, and then as the movie goes on, he turns into somebody completely different. Same instance here for the most part, but they both turn into two totally different people. Um, but with um, but with Drive, it has this music, it has this look to it that completely draws you in, and the guest utilizes the musical, or excuse me, utilizes music and its visual style to draw the audience in, to create a mood, to create a mo, to evoke a mo- uh, to evoke emotion, whether it be like sexiness or something uh, very intense. You know, it was a job well done. However, as the movie goes on, I felt that they overused that to almost the point of it being a gimmick. And that's where I'm going to end the review with that. Uh, I still give this movie 3.75. Adam Wingard is a very promising director. He also directed the film You're Next, which is what he, uh, which we actually reviewed that. We reviewed that a few months back. And we both enjoyed it. I pretty much, uh, I think Matt even gave it the same review for the most part. <laughs> Surprising, entertaining, and, um, you know, d- directors like this are fun because you don't know what else they're going to pull out of the hat, you know, for example. So I look forward to his next movie. Hopefully he makes like a cool sci-fi movie. That would be pretty neat. So I give this one 3.75 as well. Awesome. All right, cool. Uh, where do you want to go from here, sir? How about Calvary? All right, Calvary. This is a uh, 2014 Irish drama film. It's written and directed by John Michael McDonough. Uh, stars Brendan Gleeson, Chris O'Dowd, Kelly Riley, and I don't think anyone knows would know offhand the rest of most of the people unless it was by sight. Um, Chris O'Dowd? I, think. I mentioned Chris O'Dowd. Oh, you did? Yeah, I stopped at Kelly Riley. I did Brendan Gleeson, Chris O'Dowd, and Kelly Riley. Oh, Continue. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so I don't know. Okay, this this movie struck me as a much darker version. Um, well, a much darker Catholic version of a short-lived BBC TV series called Kingdom from 2007 starring Stephen Fry. Um if you have seen the if you have seen the, the the series, then please forgive this brief foray, you know, kind of digression off to the side. Um, this the the series Kingdom is a dramedy more or less 
about a guy named Peter Kingdom, who's a small town solicitor, and basically he has this, this just this very quirky small town, but also has to deal with his missing, presumed dead relative. Um, and so it's got some kind of darker tones to it, but it's just kind of this series. It's almost like a series of just one-off events, just one after the other, that form the framework of someone who has to, by virtue of what they do, deal with different members of the community. Now, getting back on track with Calvary, this is definitely a much darker version of that, but it just kind of seems to start and it starts and definitely comes back and brings you back to brings you back around but in such a fashion that you're left kind of sitting around going wow these are some powerful performances especially when contra when contrasted with the fact that Father James, who is basically this, at the start of the movie, a parishioner says, uh, look, I was, I was sexually abused. The person who sexually abused me is dead. But I feel that in order to make right, I guess, for lack of a better term, in kind of a perverse sense of justice for the destruction of my innocence as a good and innocent child, I'm going to destroy a good priest, you. This guy who then, who has just been threatened with his life, pretty much just goes about the rest of his day and the rest of the next few days. He says, look, I'm going to kill you on Sunday. And he just goes about his business until the movie comes to a full resolution. Um, but all of the different interplay that happens that you see is you get the sense that it truly is real, that you are sucked in. Not to mention the cinematography plays plays a what I like to what I like to think of as a quiet role. It's very subtle and yet extremely effective. It's not grandiose, it's not sweeping. There's not a whole bunch of natural beauty that's all over the place. But it helps to set a tone throughout the movie. That's not to say that there aren't some good shots or anything, but it, it helps to set the tone of each of the interactions that you're about to see. And the director definitely understood, of course it's easier when you write it as well, um, definitely had such a grasp on the source material uh, from via the script that he was able to really help these actors bring these characters to life. Um, the only thing that I did not like about this movie, and, and it's my only complaint, it seemed to follow a loop to its natural conclusion, but without any without any real fight or muster from Father James, who is the central character in the film. And that's played, who's played by Brandon Gleason. I, I get the feeling, and, and I don't know if it's just because 
as even though I'm watching really good acting and everything, I just can't help but interject myself to say, "Come on, are you are you really gonna just do this? You know, is this how this is gonna go down?" Um, but I just really feel like there needed to be more, uh, more of a fight, more, more of a, uh, yeah, that, I guess, I guess, uh, just more of a fight put up by Father James, I think. Um, and for that and that alone, I, I put it at four and a half stars. I really enjoy this movie. It's a very powerful film. Um, it definitely tackles a lot of interesting issues, a lot of familial issues and church issues, but in a very unique way that doesn't dehumanize anybody. It doesn't vilify unnecessarily anybody or anything. Um, and definitely asks you the question, well, what would you do? Four and a half stars. What do you got, Tim? And the movie is pretty humorous as well, despite its, uh, its saucy... Uh, subject matter but um this is a really good movie it's beautifully shot i mean from the technical standpoint it's great directing uh standpoint for the most part he did a great job um this is his follow-up to a film he directed with brennan gleason and don Cheadle called the guard and i couldn't help but start making comparisons between these the the setup of the ending between the two movies um, it worked for the guard. Um, the cavalry, not so much. Now, what Matt said about you know every aspect of the film, all the all the positives, he's absolutely correct. I agree with uh, his negative comments as well. Um, but what kept this movie from being a five star movie was the movie's final 10, 15 minutes, and the movie becomes an utter mess. It doesn't completely ruin the movie. But it is a damn dirty shame. Because you have characters that change. Um, you have to keep in mind that Brennan Gleason's character, he isn't a saint. He wasn't he hasn't been a, a priest for, you know, decades upon decades upon decades. He's only been doing it for, you know, a a, a rel- compared to others, a relatively shorter period of time. And there's a part of the a, a, a a, a scene in the movie, or multiple scenes in the movie, where his character changes, and he has reason to become a different person. Not completely. I mean, he's still, you know, standing by his guns or standing with his guns. But I, I'm, I'm talking about like his out—not his outlook on life, but his outlook of wanting to live. And so, as you're watching the movie. You think something else is going to happen. In fact, something else should have happened. Like what Matt said, putting up a fight. There, there, ha- there, there should have been something more there. Um, and that was pretty much it on the story level. I mean, there. what was also uh, added to the mess was uh, some not that great of, of edits and some really goofy video effects. Not video effects, but just just how it was all. Uh, I guess it was just how it was all put together, um, and yeah, I mean, beautiful setting, great performances. Um, oh yeah, and really, the only other thing about it is that it is pretty obvious who the bad guy is, and that's where the movie is cliched. 
Though, despite saying that, I still give this movie four and a half stars because it is very entertaining, the performances are powerful, and it's just a really good a story to tell, I thought. Um, I highly recommend it, 4.5. However, I wish, 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 wish this was a five-star movie. And all they had to do was just fix the last ten minutes, and I would have been okay. But 4.5 out of 5, still good in my book. All right, all right. Okay, so last but certainly not least... It happened one night, the 1934 American rom-com. Uh, it's directed by Frank Capra. Now, this film was the first film to win all five major Academy Awards, Best Picture, Director, Actor, Actress, and Screenplay, and would not be repeated until 1975 for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So, 41 years before it happened again. Um, and then, of course, Silence of the Lambs in 1991. This is definitely a Capra-esque film. And I will say this. I know that we're pretty fast and loose with the language and everything and subject matter. Of course, we're a podcast for grown-ups and, you know, we're, we're grown-up, or at least we'd like to think so. But I gotta be honest with you. It was really refreshing to watch an entire movie and not hear a curse word. I, I, and I, I know. Call me whatever. Call me old fashioned, whatever. It just was really refreshing to go through an entire movie and not hear one bad word the entire time. It just proves that it's possible. Um, this movie follows a young lady played by Claudette Colbert who goes by the name of Ellie Andrews. She is an heiress uh, who has recently eloped with a gentleman by the name of King Alexander. Um, and, or, or King, I'm sorry, King Wesley. I'm sorry, King Alexander, sorry. King Wesley. Um, her father, Alexander Andrews, of course, uh, is this multi-millionaire magnate, and he does not approve of this union, is doing everything he can to keep his daughter away, even though she's already married. Uh, film starts, and he's got her trapped on a boat, um, where she's refusing to eat because she's mad at Daddy for keeping her away. Um, she does end up escaping, and through a series of mishaps, ends up catching a bus from Miami to New York to go be with her betrothed. And she bumps into uh, recently fired newspaper man, Peter Warren. Um, uh, Warren, sorry, Peter Warren. And he is played by Clark Gable. Now, the idea is, is Clark Gable pretty quickly figures out who she is and offers her a deal. Look, I'll help you get back to your your husband but you have to give me the exclusive on your story if you don't want to you know if you don't want to do that i'm just going to call your dad and let him know where you are so she's like okay i'll take the deal now just like any screwball rom-com of course they end up falling for each other and things happen along the way that cause them to fall for each other and then of course you know you have to have something that causes a you know a rift after they think they've fallen for each other and everything um so it naturally plays out in a very capper-esque way um 
And, and for those of you who are like, well, Capra-esque, well, just think to yourself the ultimate Capra-esque film, which, of course, is It's a Wonderful Life. And this one was better received, although initially not a whole lot better received. It just ended up picking up steam on its own. Um and ultimately led to all the success that it found at the Academy Awards. And the the reason why is because I think um, a lot of Capra's films lack a particular luster of sophistication. Now, that's not to say that they're not good movies, and that's not to say that there's there's poor acting or anything like that. It's just that he was a believer in simple tales with formulaic action and a pre- usually predictable happy ending um it's pure golden age of hollywood in a nutshell frank frank capper and the way he did his films the thing is is that this movie came out during the depression so that's what the people wanted and i think when you have a pulse of what the people want it can propel movies that may not have necessarily been critically as great initially into the fame that it ended up picking up at the Academy Awards. So, take it for what you will. Uh, it, it has, I would say, definitely aged well in terms of uh, in terms of a rom com, especially of that era. The only thing um, that I would say that has not aged well would be some of the character actors of the day. There's definitely this one guy. Uh, who sits down with Ellie on the bus after as she's kind of mad at Clark Gable and just strikes up this conversation, starts trying to hit on her and everything. He just won't stop talking. He's very annoying. And you could tell that this character was designed to be annoying. He was designed to provide a foil for Clark Gable to basically work his way back in, um, to get in good with Claudette Colbert. And there's, there's a few of those things that are purposely set up. And I think with some better writing, um, that could have, that could have been done. And again, it was more for the humor aspect and it was more for the fun aspect and the simple aspect. than again, that luster of sophistication, um, it doesn't hurt the movie terribly, but it's just painfully obvious. And I think that that's the kind of thing that was obvious even during the day. Um, all in all, I still enjoyed this movie. Definitely a fun watch. Really enjoyed it. It's not perfect. It's aged pretty well. But you can definitely see why the public would have enjoyed it more, especially during the time period, than the critics initially. But you can't fault success like that. Four stars. It happened one night. Four stars. Bring us home, Tim. It Happened One Night is the rom-com to end all rom-coms. It is technically the first (laughs) rom-com, the first first well-executed, successfully executed rom-com. It's the granddaddy of rom-coms. There you go, yeah. Um, and I, it's brilliant all the way through. This is one of those movies where nobody knew that it was going to be good. In fact, most people that were working on the movie, including Claudette Colbert and um, Clark Gable, thought that the movie, thought that the script 
was horrible. <laughs> Everybody thought the script sucked. Frank Capra took the movie to MGM. They didn't want anything to do it. He took it to uh, Warner Brothers. They didn't want anything to do it. The only studio that would make this movie was Columbia Pictures. And at the time, Columbia Pictures was considered an independent um, company. It was not on the scale of... of, of, of um, as to what it is now, you know, it wasn't like Warner Brothers. It wasn't like Paramount Pictures. It did a lot of these. Uh, it took chances, and I think if anything to, is to say about this movie is that at least in a film class, is that this shows you the importance of not only movie studios, uh, but actors and directors and scri- uh, screenwriters, uh, crew people, is to take chances if you think uh, if you think your product or your project is really good like if you honestly feel that way i guarantee you some other people are going to think it's good as well and if you're lucky maybe millions of people will think your movie is good as well which is what happened with um with with it happened one night again nobody thought the movie was great frank capper you can just tell by watching this movie that Frank Capra was having as much fun making this movie <laughs> as uh, as Clark Gable's character was having tormenting Claudette Col- uh, Colbert. And yet again, neither of the two of them thought the script was any good. What was very interesting is that at the time uh, Clark Gable was a part of Metro Golden Mayor, if you remember, studios owned actors and normally they wouldn't rent or lease any of their actors out to other studios but because columbia pictures was columbia pictures and clark gable wasn't making an mgm movie at that time mgm did something that they rarely ever did at the time they loaned clark gable out because at the time they were paying clark gable two thousand dollars a week so they had columbia pictures pay mgm $2,500 a week. So MGM was making a $500 profit. Also at that time, Claudette uh, Colbert was not enjoying the making of this movie. In fact, she hated the filmmaking process. uh, Or she hated the process of making this movie. But but, But needless to say, this movie is, in my mind, or in my eye, or whatever, absolutely perfect. It is hilarious. It is unbelievably romantic. In fact, it is also kind of saucy for its time as well, with uh, with Clark Gable taking off his shirt and revealing his bare chest. <laughs> you know, so there was like those little bitty tidbits. I mean, they were even saying that this movie is what uh, is is it was is kind of what pushed for there being a production code. Because, oh my god, Clark Gable was not wearing an undershirt under his dress shirt. And yet you saw his chest hair and his manliness, his scruff, you know, going all over the place. Well, you did. And a lot of people did because of the uh, the lack of a production code. Um, and so, again, you know, this movie is great. Five stars. I actually own the Criterion Blu-ray of this movie, which is... Uh, was 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 digitalized in 4K and uh, remastered in 4K, 
or now you can't remaster the movie in 4K, but it was digitalized and kind of upconverted up to 4K. So it looks absolutely beautiful, that Criterion release. And it's loaded with so many special features, including all those juicy tidbits about MGM having to loan Clark Gable out to uh, Columbia Pictures. Um, as well as other juicy tidbits... Uh, about you know more about Claudette Colbert when she thought that oh there's no way in hell I'm going to win the Academy Award for this movie so what did she do she decided to take a trip she was on the boat she was I know I, she was on a plane or on a train to go somewhere and an aide a Hollywood aide had to be sent out to retrieve her and so she came to the ceremony wearing her traveling garb. And she accepted the award completely stunned and amazed that she actually won for the project that she practically loathed being a part of. So, five stars for me, if you didn't already guess that. It happened one night. Check it out. And again, highly recommend the Criterion Collection Blu-ray. Check it out. All right. Well, see, it was a good week for movies for us. A very good week indeed. All right, so I guess it's going to bring us to the end of the movies. And next week, we're going to get ready for uh, Fast and Furious 7. Uh, so our movies for next week are Fast and Furious, Too Fast, Too Furious, and The Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift. So, that's it. I think that brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on. All right, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. We, of course, are the SLS Cast, and as always, you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can even follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Knit twit one two three four five. You can of course climb aboard the information superhighway and get a hold of Tim if you like to do that as well. And of course, you can subscribe to us on iTunes and/or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. We once again want to thank our friends Midnight Movie Nights at Movie Nights Pod for having Tim on this last weekend. And thanks to Joaquin Phoenix. I Matt get to say this. My significant other right now is myself, which is what happens when you suffer from multiple personality disorder and self-obsession. And this is Tim saying that we will talk to you guys next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.